If you have the Bible with you, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke. My name is R.D. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the church. And as always, it is great to be with you guys, 1045 a.m. Let's finish the weekend strong, all right? Okay, a few of you are excited. Good, great. <laughs> the rest of you, hopefully we will, we will get there. We'll start actually, we're going to be most of our time in Luke chapter 5, but you can actually start in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. So in the early first century A.D., which, uh, spoiler alert, that's when Luke was written, in the first century A.D., and he's writing also about events that take place in the first century A.D. And here, here was a narrative that was very strong throughout the first century A.D. There was one who was called Lord of all. There was one who was called Son of God, who had come on the throne and who was now ruling and reigning over an entire empire. And this was a, a very strong narrative that existed. And everyone who's reading the Gospels, everyone who's in first century Palestine knows this narrative, that there is one who exists, who is the Lord of all and who is the Son of God. And everyone knows him by these names. And in the early first century, that person was actually called Caesar Augustus. Right, and every coin that was there in uh, early first century Palestine had um, Caesar's face on it, like George Washington is on the face of the quarter. Right, is he on the face of the quarter? Okay, you guys all know either. So fantastic, <laughs> no worries. I, he, one of our presidents is on there, but like on the face. And what do our quarters say? In God we trust. Well, in the first century, uh, Julius, not Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, uh, his frame is on there, and it said "Son of God" underneath him. And Caesar Augustus was the Lord of all and was the son of God, his adopted father, Julius Caesar. And Luke makes sure that everyone reading this knows the time in which it is set. Because how does Luke chapter 2 begin? This famous passage that is wrapped up in all the Christmas wonderful stories. In those days, Caesar Augustus, the Lord of the world, son of God, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And as Luke is writing his gospel, he's writing it under the veil of occupation, that the people of Palestine are not free. The chosen people, the Jewish people are not free. They're actually in a world that where God is not actually the God, Yahweh, actually God is Caesar Augustus, and he rules somewhere in Rome. And they would know this because if they would go to the theater or go to the grocery store or go to school or go to the synagogue, they would see Roman soldiers who were walking about the streets. Think of your neighborhood and think of Roman soldiers and all of their gear walking everywhere, clearly reminded that actually God, where is he? He doesn't seem to be on the throne. Caesar seems to be on the throne. And the people of Israel, the chosen people, are taxed at such a high rate. They're giving sacrificially to the temple because of their love for God, Yahweh. And then they're having to give at such a high level to Rome. And there's massive poverty and there's oppression and they're wondering, where is our king? We didn't see it going like this. And in the middle of all this hopelessness and wondering where is the kingdom, the people begin to hear about a young prophet who's wandering the countryside, a young man who's talking and healing and touching people, and, and people are flocking to him. Yeshua, Manatzeret, Jesus, who comes from Nazareth. Who is this man? He's walking around Judea and Samaria and Galilee, and everyone is running to him and, and coming to him. 
And you hear that he's coming to your town. You hear that he's coming to Nazareth. And so you run to the synagogue because you want to hear, is this someone who can finally help us? Is this someone who can set things right? Is this someone that we can actually hope in? Or is this someone else like many Jews before who will be eventually crucified? Are our hopes dashed? And as you clamor around the synagogue, as you try and hear, but it's so full because Yeshua is there. Jesus is there. You can only make out what he's saying. And maybe you hear this from what Pastor Mark preached on last week. Flip over to Luke chapter 4. As you're straining to hear, you hear Jesus speak. This is, comes actually from the book of Isaiah, which all of the Jews would know. And Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as you hear these words, you're thinking, maybe. Or are these just words? It sounds great, but we've heard things like this before and had our hopes dashed. But this one seems different. This prophet seems different. And if Luke has begun to build this case as he's writing to Theophilus at the very beginning of his gospel, flip again. I know a lot of flipping, but it's only a few pages, hopefully, to Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her about the birth of Jesus the Messiah. And what does... The angel Gabriel says specifically, verse 30 of chapter 1. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Ah, we have another son of God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And here we see Luke very early beginning to build the case that there is another kingdom coming. And if there's a kingdom, perhaps there's a king to rule it and reign it. But then he continues to talk about Caesar Augustus. And in Luke chapter 3, we see Tiberius Caesar who takes the reins after Caesar Augustus and Pontius Pilate, the Roman representative. Luke doesn't ever get away from the fact that Romans are occupying the people. Yet Jesus continues to talk about the kingdom of God, a different kingdom. And at the end of Luke chapter 4, Jesus is, he's talking about the kingdom. He's healing people. And the people in Nazareth are like, Jesus, don't leave. We don't want you to leave because of all the things that you're doing. Please don't leave us. And he says, I have to leave. And in Luke chapter 4, on the screen, 43 and 44, Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because this is why I was sent. Sent by whom? Sent by God. For what purpose? To proclaim the kingdom of God. And he kept preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's talking about freedom for prisoners and liberty and justice and equality. This world called the kingdom of God, it saturates all of the gospel accounts. It saturates the New Testament. What is the kingdom of God? Right? It, we, we maybe read it a lot and we kind of know what it is. And maybe most of us think that the kingdom of God is like heaven one day. And eventually we live in the present world. And then one day this world's going away. And then we're finally going to be with God forever in heaven. And that's the kingdom of God. And right now we're kind of stuck in the kingdom of this world. Right? We just got to grit our teeth and get through it. And that's what many of the Jewish people thought. That, that one day God is coming back. And when he comes, he's taking us with him. And we can finally get out of this world that is so broken. 
right? We can overthrow Rome and overthrow this pagan government. Finally, we'll be free. And yet what Luke is saying and what Jesus is saying is very, very shocking. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is not something which is only coming at the end, but it's something that is actually coming right now, right in the middle of history. What? The kingdom of God is not just physical boundaries. It's not just like there's a castle and then this place over there is the kingdom of God like it borders Israel. No, the kingdom of God answers this question. What would it look like if God ran the whole show? What would it look like if God actually ran everything? The kingdom of God is not a place. It's a reality where the good rule and the good reign of King Jesus permeates all things. Our hearts, our marriages, our colleges, our businesses, our cities, our nation, where the good rule and the good reign of the kingdom of God fills us even now. Not just in the future, but right now. Right? And this would be so mind-blowing. I think it is even for us because I never really even thought this. I thought we're here in the world, and then the goal is to get to heaven and get out of the earth. That's the point of the Gospels, right? We save our souls, and then we get to go to heaven and be with Jesus. And then we're just kind of hanging out here, and yes, we're helping people because we're nice people, and there's something about loving your neighbor in the Gospels somewhere, but we're just kind of waiting till the main event, right? And what Jesus is saying is actually that the main event has started right now. And we're having a foretaste of the world that is coming right here and right now. Imagine, right, the dawn has just broken over the night. It's not fully sun yet, but the dawn has come. And you're thinking, it feels very much like the night still, but I'm starting to see things. I I imagine this. I don't imagine it because I did this with my dad. Uh, We would go duck hunting when uh, I was young, and for some reason, ducks get up very early. Did you know this? Like duck, I was like, Dad, why? Is there some animal that sleeps in that we could go hunt for? Is there some animal that we could like go hunt for that just like, it's like me, it's kind of lazy as a high schooler, right? I don't want to wake up, and you know, bonding time with, uh, with the old man, which ended up always actually being really great, as it often turns out. And we would get up really early, earlier than ducks, because we had to surprise them and had to be ready for them, because they only flew for like eight minutes, and it's like, Come on, Lord, you didn't have to do it that way. And yet the Lord, he did in all of his wisdom. And so um, we get up really early and it would feel very much like Saturday night. I mean, it felt like very much like I am still on Saturday night. Why am I not in the bed? It's completely dark. You can't see. How can we even see the ducks? We can't see anything. And yet slowly but surely before you can even see the sunrise, what do you begin to see? You begin to slowly see in kind of hues of of blue and dark blue and maybe um, an orange. You begin to slowly make out things in the fog and the mist, right? Maybe some of the water, and you can begin to see some trees and the plants, and you're blind. You can actually begin to see each other. Not, not fully, and it very much felt like Saturday night, and yet it was already Sunday. And what Jesus is saying at the arrival of the kingdom, he's saying you're actually living in a world which for all purposes they think it's still Saturday, but what I want to tell you is that Sunday has dawned, and the new world you thought was coming in the future has actually broken right into the present. Like, you know, remember last year when we had the polar vortex? And so we understand occupation. We were occupied by the polar vortex last year, right? And we're praying, not again, Lord. <laughs> not, forgive us. <laughs> forgive us. We don't want it. We don't want it again. I remember last year, it was so cold. And uh, it had been cold all winter. And it was still in winter. And it was probably late February, early March. And it got to like 40 degrees. 
right? It got to 40 degrees and everyone started going crazy. And people on Facebook posted pictures like tanning in their backyards and people are putting suntan lotion on. You remember this? And everyone was just so happy and people are like high-fiving in the streets. And it's like, it feels like spring has come. You know, this is unbelievable. And yet we knew the next day it was going to be cold again because it was still winter. But somehow spring had come from the future into the present. And we knew it was spring because we'd felt it before. It'd come from some other place, and we knew it wasn't going to last, but we knew bird singing was close, and we knew that leaves on trees were coming again. We knew that resurrection was going to follow the winter. Actually, I never even had knew, know this before when I lived in Texas or Tennessee, and yet actually living in Wisconsin is very profound because you see complete death. <laughs> And yet, for all, all winter, what do we hope for? That hopefully spring comes early. <laughs> and Jesus says, though the world is winter, I have brought spring with me. And I'm inviting you to then spread it, to, to awaken the world. That dawn has come, that spring has come, that it's actually already Sunday. That the kingdom of God has launched on earth. And I am the king, inviting you to follow me into the kingdom Yes, you and I get to be a part of it. It's not just for that actually King Jesus in the scandalous grace of him invites you and I to be a part of it. Even though we could mess the whole thing up. Even though we do mess the whole thing up, he still says, I want you to be a part of it. I want you to get out of the boat and follow me into the future that's coming right into the present. Luke chapter 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of the Lord, the kingdom of God, the gospel. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now it's a famous story. You've probably heard it before. You have Jesus who is just at the end of Luke chapter 4. Remember, he's teaching about the kingdom of God and everyone is coming around him. And it's so crowded on the shore that he's like, hey, uh, Simon, can I get in your boat and keep teaching the people? And Simon's probably like, okay, sure, sure, preacher man, let's get the boat, we'll go a little bit out so you can then teach all the people. And Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about the new way that God has inaugurated right now in the very present. And so he's teaching about this. And all of a sudden, this carpenter becomes a fisherman. And he begins to tell Simon his business, right? Simon is a fisherman. This is all he, he does. He knows what he's doing. Imagine, right, you know something, whatever your job is, whatever you're really good at, and then someone else who you don't think knows anything about that tells you, well, this is actually how you should do it. How are you going to feel? Probably angry. <laughs> Probably your first reaction is not, thank you for that comment. Thank you. You know, thank you for that. And yet, what happens with Simon and Peter is this beautiful interchange where at first Simon is like, master, 
means teacher. Teacher, I, I know you may not know this, but we actually fished all night already. And look at the nets. We didn't catch anything. Right? He's kind of, at first he's like, ah, I, you're, I think you're a carpenter and I'm a fisherman. So kind of let me do my thing and you can do the teaching thing. <laughs> and yet, right, something in Jesus and who he is and how he acts and how he interacts at the very same moment where Peter has a moment of disbelief, which will come to Mark Peter. He has a moment of belief where he says, because you say so, I will let down my nets. This is the first mark of a disciple, someone who follows Jesus, even though they have no idea what's about to happen. Does Peter know the nets are going to be filled? No. Does he have any any idea who this person is? Actually, he doesn't know who this person is, really. And yet he trusts Jesus and he puts down the nets and what happens? Fish come from everywhere. And they're like, Peter's like, James, John, get over here, everybody. We got to get these fish. This is unbelievable. This is crazy. I can't believe what's happening here. And what's Peter's reaction? Does he jump on Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you. You're awesome. You're the best. Thanks for coming. You like made my whole year here. You're awesome and we're awesome. Now, what does he do? He drops on his knees and he says, Lord, depart from me. For I am a sinful man. He doesn't jump on Jesus. He doesn't even get near Jesus. He gets down on his knees. Can you imagine if you're watching it from the shore? And you're thinking, okay, Jesus is, oh, look at all these fish. And then this big, strong man named Peter drops on his knees. What is happening? Who is this prophet? Well, why, does, why does Peter drop to his knees and say, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Right? Because when you're in the presence of Jesus, when you're, when you're in the presence of holiness, you begin to see who you truly are. And what you want is for this to depart because of how your heart begins to beat fast. And in that moment, Jesus could have said one of two things. He could have said, Peter, don't think that. You're awesome. Don't have such negative thoughts about yourself. Have positive thinking about who you are. You're not sinful. You're not wicked. You are awesome. You are a champion. Believe that. Right? He could have done that. But he doesn't. He actually doesn't uh, disavow what Peter says. He affirms what Peter says by not rebuking him, acknowledging that, yes, Peter, you are a sinful man. Yes, I am actually not just a prophet. I'm actually so much more than that. At the same breath, Jesus could also say, exactly, you are a sinful man. You are wicked. Why aren't you following the law? Why aren't you obeying me? Why don't you know what to do? Why don't you just do it? You have the Bible. You have the law. I don't understand. Jesus could easily have said that to him when this man is on his knees before him encountering the holy. And yet, what does Jesus say to him? The command that we hear more often than not than any other command in all the scripture, Jesus, at this moment of great vulnerability to Peter, he says, Peter, do not be afraid. Come and follow me. Wow. Wow. What a God. He speaks gospel words of comfort to him. The acknowledgement is there from Peter that I am a sinful man. And yet Jesus says, it's for sinful men and women that I've come to call them to be a part of my kingdom. You're in because you've admitted your need. Do you see what's happened here? Do you see? The only way that we get included is is if we admit that we shouldn't be included. And yet Jesus says, do not be afraid. Come and follow me into the future that's actually coming right into the present. And so they get out of the boat, they leave everything, and they follow him. Peter trusts Jesus. Does he have any idea where Jesus is taking him? Does he know what following Jesus is going to look like any more than you and I do? 
No, when Jesus says we're going to go fish for people, what, is, what could he possibly, are we, what? <laughs> what are you talking about, Jesus? Like, what do you mean fish for people, right? In, in some translations it said we're going to go catch men. And it's like, are we, is this like a police operation? Like, are we going to go round up people and like bring them into jail and then tell them that God is loving, right? What are we going to do? What does it mean to fish for people? And we should not pretend that Peter knew any more than we know when we read it. He didn't know where his future was headed, but he knew who was headed there. He knew who he was following into the future. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of flipping the the fishing metaphor on its face. Because when you fish, then and and now, you catch live fish, right? Hopefully they're alive. If they're dead, you put them back because it's probably just toxic, you know. But the Sea of Galilee back then was very pure. And uh, so you catch live fish, you kill them, and then you spread them out to all the countryside so the people can eat off the fish. Jesus is saying, actually, we're not doing that what we're going to do is actually catch spiritually dead people. And we're going to raise them to life in the kingdom, proclaiming that Jesus is king, and then we're going to send them back out into the world, back out into the water, to proclaim to other people what has happened. And I actually want you to be a part of that, Peter. Now, Peter doesn't get all of that now, but we have the benefit of reading through the Gospels and through Acts and understanding Peter eventually got this. Jesus says, you and I are going to go make disciples people who will follow me, people who are going to raise life. There's actually going to be resurrection right here in the middle of the present. We're going to raise people to life. That's what I'm all about. That's what the kingdom is all about. Do you want to follow me into that future? And Peter's like, sure, yes. I'm not sure where I'm going, but I trust you, Lord. You and I have no idea where God is taking us. How much of your life looked like you thought your life was going to look? Peter has no idea when he gets off that boat that he will eventually be crucified, that Jesus will eventually be crucified, that this man who makes so many mistakes, who is hot and cold, who is all over the map, Jesus will say, upon your confession of faith, I'm going to build my church, Peter, and show the world that I'm not working through perfect people, I'm working through forgiven people, people who get on their knees in front of me and follow me and trust that I'm good and powerful. And so now, the rest of Luke we have to see in this way. You can no longer read the Gospel of Luke and not see that everything that Jesus is now doing is talking about what the kingdom of God looks like here on earth. And just imagine that Peter and James and John and eventually the rest of the disciples are near Jesus and every teaching and every healing and every um, resurrection of people, all these things are about one purpose, to show the disciples and show the world what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes in the earth in power. And that Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim freedom. What does that actually look like? And Jesus says, get off the boat and find out. And they do. What do they find out? Well, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, do not tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So here we can imagine that Jesus is actually just all the people around him and everything he's doing now is both a healing of a person And also to show Peter, James, and John, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And so you can imagine that as they begin this, a leper comes out of the village, out of the town, and approaches Jesus and falls down on his face. 
Now, lepers, according to the book of Leviticus, this is what it said about lepers. We'll have it on the screen. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes. Let their hair be unkept, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they must remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. This was the prescription for the people of Israel, that if you had leprosy, if you had a skin disease, which was very easily transferable, you had to remain outside. You had to cover the lower part of your mouth. Everyone knew you had leprosy, and you're yelling, unclean, unclean. And according to the law, anyone who touched a leper would themselves become defiled. Now, Peter, James, and John knew that. Surely Jesus knew Leviticus 13. And so they're thinking, and Jesus is saying, this is going to be an opportunity. I'm going to show you what the kingdom of God looks like right here in the healing of this leper. And so the leper comes at him. And where do we find the leper? Like we find Peter, right? Looking at Jesus face to face or on his face prostrate before Jesus. He says, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, Jesus could have healed him from afar. He could not have healed him. And he could have healed him from afar. Jesus knew everything that was pregnant in his touch of this man. Again, Luke is very deliberate in saying, can you imagine? It's not going to be, you're going to clearly know Jesus touches him because he's on the ground and Jesus is standing up, presumably. And Jesus reached down and Luke writes, what does Luke say? He says, he reached down and he, he touched him. In a sense, becoming defiled himself. And yet there we see the scripture that he became sin for us so that we could have the righteousness of God. In a sense, Jesus becomes defiled so that this man can become undefiled. And and what Jesus is saying, he's saying, hey, Peter and James and and John, actually, um, no one is untouchable in the kingdom of God. There is no such thing as leprosy in the kingdom of God. There's no one who's untouchable. There's no one that you can't reach out to and touch. The boundaries have broken down in the kingdom because the kingdom is not just a physical place. It's the reality of God's rule and reign over all things. It's the way life was always supposed to be. And Peter, they must have been thinking, what? (laughs) They're Jews and they're Gentiles and there's clean and there's unclean and the kingdom of God. Oh, jeez. And that's why there are 20 more chapters of Luke, right? That's why they spend three years with Jesus, not two weeks. Because they, like us, we don't don't get it. Wait, they're they're worthy to be touched and immediately his... Okay, I'm going to keep going, but that doesn't that just blew my mind. I'm not sure what the kingdom is. And yet even now in our time, there are people who are untouchable, right? Not as much now, but especially when the disease really broke out, uh, people who had contracted HIV were very untouchable. And people loved them from a very far distance. And the church sadly kind of led the way in, in not being near that and not wanting to touch that. And yet what Jesus says here is that actually they're touchable, actually they're reachable actually want to love them and serve them. People with Ebola, right, are very untouchable. I read in the New York Times how family members were just weeping and crying because they couldn't hold ones who in front of them who were dying. And we know Pastor Matthew and other pastors went straight into the fire and touched these people and hugged these people. Where did they get that idea? Well, maybe from Jesus, who went out of his way to touch people, even willing to become defiled himself. And eventually it did lead to his death. But through his death, it led to life. There's no one in our society who is untouchable, according to Jesus. It doesn't mean that everything everyone's doing is okay, but it means that we need to reach out in love without judgment and show them what life looks like in the kingdom that God has made for them. And Peter and James and John must have been like, 
And the next thing you know, Jesus is off to his next teaching. Well, what is that? Oh, before we get there, verse 16. I don't want to miss this. It's so important. Mark hit it last week. Also so important. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Pray? Let's get to work. Right? Prayer, that's just like in the way. Like that doesn't, you're, okay, yeah, great, pray, okay. Let's go touch people and heal people, right? And yet, even though Jesus was the only one who could do what he's doing, he still found time to pray. Now, I wonder what he prayed. Well, maybe he prayed this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Right, like right here and right now, that prayer is at the center, the work of what God wants to do because we can't do it and we can't bring the kingdom, but the spirit of God working through the church, working through us can bring the kingdom right into the middle of the present. So Jesus is connecting himself to the creator of life. Remember, the one who sent him into the world, the one who put him into the world, right into the middle of it, God sent him into the world. So Jesus is connecting back to the one who sent him back to God, filling up on life, filling up on the kingdom, filling up. On, on who he is. And then he's praying, Lord, would you send the kingdom and power right now? Would you heal people? Would you touch people? Would you give me continued authority to do all of these things? He's praying and pleading and asking and that that is the work just as much as touching people and healing people. Praying that God might move in power. Praying for our city. Praying that things would be in Madison as they are in heaven. Things would be in our country as they are in heaven. Things would be in my marriage as it is in heaven. Things would be in the world as it is in heaven. Actually praying this and believing it. That longing to see the good rule and reign happen means that we have to go out and make it happen. What does it look like when God comes in power? Well, it looks like Luke chapter 5. And Jesus withdrew often. In the Greek, it's this understanding that he continually withdrew to pray. Not once a week, not three times in his ministry, but ongoing. How else? If Jesus needed to pray, if he needed to get before the Father and say, Father, help me. Because the world is so broken. But you didn't send me, right? To just be taken out of the world, but that the world might look new through me. And Peter and James and John are seeing their teacher and their leader do this. Jesus is praying and praying and praying, and yet he continues to move around the countryside. Verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. This is our first mention of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not an official kind of religious body as much as they were kind of a protest movement, which we could probably understand here in Madison, people who sometimes protest because they're passionate about something. What are they passionate about? They're passionate about the kingdom of God. So maybe they might be concerned with Jesus and what he's talking about because he's talking about the kingdom of God. And many of the Pharisees believe that if, if the people of God, the, the Jewish people, could just follow the Torah, could just follow the law, all the rules of the Old Testament, if they could just follow it for one moment of one day, then God would come back and rescue them from this hell. And so that's why they're so passionate about it. Like if we could just follow, just do this, they create all these external rules because that's when they thought the kingdom was coming. And some thought we need to overtake Rome. We need to kill Caesar and put God on the throne. That's how we're going to change the world. That's what it looks like, not even knowing that right among them the kingdom had been launched. But the kingdom starts like a mustard seed and grows from that. They didn't even know that. And so what Luke is saying is that not just one or two Pharisees have come, how many have, have come? The Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village in Galilee, from Judea and Jerusalem, everywhere. <laughs> Everybody's there to hear about this prophet. What kingdom is he talking about? 
And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick, verse 18. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this, because of the crowd, everyone's following Jesus. They went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, the Messiah, me, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. Immediately, there's the word immediately again. He stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. So imagine, remember, Peter and James and John are are there with Jesus. And they're once again trying to figure out, okay, he's talking about the kingdom. And Jesus is going to use this moment to teach about the kingdom again. So he's in a home, and it's so crowded because the Pharisees are there. Uh, Peter, James, and John are there. All the crowd is there. The poor, the lepers, the disease, uh, the spiritually possessed, they're all there. And all of a sudden, the roof begins to open, kind of a dirt patch roof. And uh, it starts to rain down, like basically from the heavens on them. And people are probably thinking, is this the end? Like, is this it? We see the sun. It's coming down, and they see all these faces. What are you guys doing? I'm like, what's happening? And then they lower the paralyzed man, the paralytic, in front of Jesus, right at his feet. But Jesus seems to miss the memo on why he's there, because what does Jesus say? He looks at the faith of the friends, and the faith of the man is included in this, and he says, your sins are forgiven. It's like, Peter's probably like, hey, Jesus, hey, I don't know how to say this, because you're Jesus, but um, he's a paralytic. So maybe you could heal them and then be on our way and it's a happy story and we can all kind of clap, right? And Jesus is like, well, actually there's a much deeper thing wrong with him than just that he can't walk. It's that he can't actually walk with me. See, if God wants to put the world right, the only way he can do that is if he puts people right with him. The hub of the wheel of the kingdom of God is forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ alone. It's, it's, it's holistic, it's fully formed. That's not the only part of the gospel, but it is at the very hub of what it means because what we cannot have is broken people trying to fix a broken world, right? That's what we have. We have a lot of well-intentioned people, right, who think we can ultimately fix the world by more education, by more justice, by more um, fighting poverty and all those things, yes and amen. And Jesus is passionate about all of those things. But ultimately, that cannot ultimately heal the world because what's gone wrong with the world is not just kind of gone wrong in creation, it's gone wrong in our very hearts. That we've said we want to choose our own kingdom, we want to walk our own way. And when Jesus says repent, he's saying give up your kingdom, give up your walking way and walk with me. Dethrone yourself from your own kingdom and enthrone me as your king. I already am that. Make that a reality of your heart. And Jesus uses his example to be controversial, right? And the Pharisees are like, he did not just say that, right? Who is this man who can forgive sins? Only God can do that. And Jesus knows what they're thinking, right? Because he's Jesus, right? He knows what they're thinking. And he uses the end of the story to do this. He says, okay, I know what you're thinking. You're saying only God can forgive sins. Guess what? The second that this man gets up off the mat, the second that this man who's never 
walked his whole life. The second that he gets up off the mat and walks home, you will know that I am the son of man, that I am the Messiah, that I am the true king because I have authority from Yahweh, from the God of Israel, your God. I have authority from him to heal people and to forgive sins. And all that is true if this man gets up and walks home. Right, and you can imagine the expectation of the people. Is this really Jesus? We heard him in the synagogue. We've heard him healing people. Could this possibly be the king? If this man gets up and walks, have we finally found the one who can truly rescue us? Waiting. Well, they didn't have to wait long. What does Luke say? He says, immediately the men got up, went home. The mat that he'd been living on his whole life, he now picks that mat up and he walks home praising God. And everyone must have looked at Jesus and thought, maybe, maybe. I love how Luke records the end of here in verse 26. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. The word remarkable in the Greek is paradoxa, which is where we get our English word paradox. You know what a paradox is? Where two things that don't seem like they should fit together, like somehow come together, right? Like, that doesn't make sense and that doesn't make sense, but like somehow it's come together and it can actually be a very powerful thing when you see it. And so the people are like, we've seen a paradox today. We've seen two things that shouldn't happen. What have they seen? Well, I think what they've seen is spring right in the middle of winter. What they've seen is the launch of Sunday right in the middle of Saturday. What they've seen is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of earth actually overlap. And they think, how can this possibly be? And they're filled with awe and worship and wonder. Has God finally become king? Is this the man we've been waiting for? Right? Friends, church, Door Creek, look at me. Don't you see? What Jesus says to Peter is what he says to us. Get out of the boat. Trust me with your future. Trust me with your life. Trust that what I want to do in the world, I want to do through you. And you have to get out of the boat. Don't you see that you are the leper? Don't you see that you are the one on the ground in need? Don't you see that you are the one who I will defile myself for and touch you and heal you and that you would leave praising God? Don't you see that just like the friends of the man, the paralytic who had faith, who trusted that God was able Jesus says, would you be those people? God is able. That the kingdom of God is right here and right now in our midst. And so everything, guys, everything that we're doing, right? Peter does not get off the boat and Jesus says, okay, forget the world. Let's have a quiet time. Let's pray and read our Bible. Yes and amen to that. But he says, do you want to see the rule and reign of God happen on earth? Go and make that happen in the Spirit's power. So now everything we're doing is infected with kingdom life, with the electricity that God has risen, that God rules and reigns right now. And so whether you're a parent or a businessman, we want to see the kingdom of heaven come into our homes, right? Come into music, come into politics, that every single thing that you're doing can be infused with the kingdom of God, with its life and vitality. It's not just coming to church. It's not just reading your Bible. It's how you live your life, getting out of the boat, following Jesus. Jesus into an uncertain future and yet trusting that we know where the future is headed. 
because we've actually seen it in the present. That we want to see resurrection right here and right now in our marriages, in our city, in our education system, right? In our government and all these things. And so the people of God are not just saying the world go to hell. But we're saying let's actually let's have heaven come into the world and transform this hell into the kingdom of God. And so it makes us for the world, right? The kingdom of God is not of the world, but it is certainly for the world. And as Christian, we want to be for the world. Always calling out, repent, turn, for the kingdom of God is better. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, I'm better. And my future is better. Put down your sword, put down your disbelief, and follow me into the future. Right, N.T. Wright, at the end of his book, Simply Christians, says that this is what it means to be a Christian. To follow Jesus Christ into the new world. God's new world which he has thrown open before us to be a church, to be disciples, to be a people who are making people, who are waking people up to the reality that it's spring, to the reality that the dawn has come and slowly but surely we're seeing the light over the water and the light on the land. We can't see it fully yet. That's when Jesus comes back. We live in the tension of the already and the not yet, that one day he is coming and the sun will fully rise and we'll see him face to face and there will be no more poverty and no more pain and no more Ebola and no more HIV. All these things will one day be in it. Jesus says, get off the boat and make these things happen with the Spirit's power right here and right now. Get out of the boat. Trust me with your future and pray, Lord, would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Telling everyone it's already Sunday. It's already dawn. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Through the power of your spirit, through your beautiful bride, the church. Father, I pray that we would be a church where we are just consumed with a passion to see you rule and reign over all things, that you are the king. And as the people of Israel, the people of Palestine long ago were wondering, could this be the one? We know you are the one because you rule and reign right now at the right hand of God the Father. Father, wherever we are, I pray we would trust you with our lives. We'd be people that are for the world, proclaiming that it's spring already even though it feels like winter. And that resurrection comes right in the middle of death. We love you, Lord. We're more grateful that you love us and you invite us to get out of the boats of our life and follow you. What a paradox indeed that you ask us to be a part of it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen.